Father, we come before you giving you thanks, first of all, for your word, how you have used it to guide us and to set us where we ought to be as far as our relationship with you is concerned. And Father, these Hebrews who are being written to, they are an example to us, how they were struggling in areas of faith, in areas of doctrine, and how the author here is trying to encourage them on the right path. May the same word encourage us to be on the right path, to be about your business. And we thank you for the grace in even delivering this word to us, your will in written form. Help us to assimilate it and help us to become one with it. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in Hebrews chapter 5. If either you can watch on the overhead, the projectors, or you can take out your Bible if you like to take notes. I recommend that you do take notes inside your Bible, and I know everything is going electronic. Uh, if you can take notes electronically, that is great too. But Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1, it reads, Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sin as well as for the sins of the people. So he's explaining the office of the high priest. The high priest was the one who was to intercede for the nation of Israel, go into the Holy of Holies once a year on Yom Kippur and offer the blood of a lamb, sprinkle it on the mercy seat Uh, and make sure that he is atoning for the sins of the nation of Israel. And since he was also subject to weakness, being a human being, he was able to relate to those who he was interceding for. He was not harsh with them, but he should have been gentle with them. That is the office of a high priest. He can relate to their weaknesses, and therefore, as he goes before God, he can go with the right heart, of course, If he has the right heart going in, his prayers will be subject to that same heart and be able to intercede for the people properly. Verse 4, no one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. Now, if you remember the Old Testament story of Korah, Korah's rebellion, Korah showed up. And he said, when they're in the wilderness, they said, who do you think, he said, who do you think you are, Moses, you and Aaron, being able to minister to the Lord? Are we not all a kingdom unto God? Can we not also bring incense before the Lord? And of course, Moses was a little perplexed, goes to God and says, God, you know, what what do you want me to do here? And God told him what to do. So Moses went back to Korah and all of his clan, all the people that were with him, and said, this is what you're supposed to do. Tomorrow, you're to show up here, you and all the horde that is with you. And if what you have spoken of is good, then you will live long and you will die at a ripe old age. And if not, may the earth swallow you whole. See you tomorrow. So he shows up the next day, and they have this incense, you know, okay, we're going to do 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 They're doing this. And Moses shows up and says, you know, if Korah is doing this because it's all good and God wants him to, everything's going to be fine. But if not, and this is Bill's paraphrase, see the glory of the Lord. 
and the ground opened up, swallowed him and everything that was with them and all the people. They just went right into the ground and burped and it shut closed because he thought he could appoint himself to a particular position of being a priest. And God says, no, you must be appointed. Now, that's how it was in the Old Testament. And so it came from the actual family line of Aaron and Moses that the priesthood was developed. You had to be an actual descendant to be part of the priesthood. You could not appoint yourself. Now, there was a king who offered sacrifice that was not supposed to offer sacrifice. He was a king in Israel, and he didn't see Samuel, and so he thought, oh, I'm just going to go ahead and offer this sacrifice. Remember who that was? That was King Saul. Because he did that, because he was disobedient before God, because he had gone to the witch of Endor, the kingdom was taken from him. And of course, we know that it eventually ended up in David's, King David's hands because of that, because he was disobedient. And so we are not supposed to self-appoint when it comes to ministry. This is the crossover and application for us. When it comes to being in the ministry, so to speak, It is my firm belief, based on these passages, that you don't just step forward and say, I'm going to be a pastor. When I grew up, it's like being a fireman or a policeman or a nurse or an attorney or a carpenter or an electrician or whatever you think you might want to do. We are not allowed as human beings to say, I want to grow up and be a pastor. People do it all the time. And when they do... Remember a few weeks ago when I gave you the statistics of pastors and how difficult it is to be a pastor and over 90% were always discouraged inside of the ministry, how tough it was and, you know, how there was conflict inside the family. And it was just, it's a ruinous life, so to speak, uh, to be in the ministry. And because of these illustrations here, or actually because of the actual scriptures and the illustrations that we get from it, if somebody wants to be a pastor... It is our belief, it has been our belief in Calvary chapels, that the Lord has to call you, that you, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt he has called you to a particular place to be a pastor and to shepherd the flock as the Lord sets it up. And it's always a step of faith. Somebody might say, well, I'm not sure if God told me. I would say, be sure. Uh, if you want to go out there, just simply Be sure. It goes on to say in verse 5, So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, of course, this is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 4. And Melchizedek is mentioned a couple of times in this chapter, in chapter 6. And in chapter 7, he's mentioned four times. So I'm going to wait till chapter 7 before we actually get into the priesthood of Melchizedek and who this guy is. But if somebody desires to go into ministry, just as Jesus was called to be the Messiah, if somebody wants to be in ministry, they're supposed to be called to be in ministry. Now, if an individual doesn't do this, there is a certainty they're not going to be prepared for what lies ahead. Uh, And some people will just be tenacious about it. And what what I mean by tenacity is uh, when I was 20 years old, I lived down in 
Palm Desert by illustration. I lived down in Palm Desert, California. And I was, <coughs> excuse me, doing one job, driving heavy construction equipment. And that came to an end. There was no construction at the time. So I went to look for a job. And I had some experience spraying urethane foam. And so I went and I found this place, this urethane foam experts, and I went to work for them. And the owner of the business happened to be the number one calf roper in the United States. And you'd go out to his house in the area that he lived, and he had these fake cattle set up, and he'd be out there roping, and his little boy who was five years old, he could rope just as good as any of them. And, and he had this dog, a healer, and this dog would get out and just take off. He would just run for miles, wouldn't stay put. And so he built a corral for this healer. He was a good dog other than that. But he decided to put an electric fence around the bottom, a wire that would keep this dog inside. Because the dog would get to the fence and he would dig underneath and he'd just go through. And so he thought, well, this will keep this dog from getting out. He set it all up, spent the hundreds of dollars to do it. And the next thing he knows, he comes out and there's a hole underneath the fence and the dog had gotten out. Well, he filled it back in and then he was observing the dog doing it again. And as the dog would go under, you know how these electric fence works? They, they give a pulse and then it backs off, right? And it gives a pulse and it backs off. It's not constant electricity. And so this dog, he would dig out, stick his head under the wire and come in contact with the wire. And he said you would see the dog visibly just go like that. And then it released and he'd dig some more. And he'd get a little farther and go, like that. And he'd keep on doing that until he got out. I mean, undue punishment was coming this dog's way. If he would just stay where he was and not go under the wire, he wouldn't have to suffer so much. People go into the ministry and they do the same thing. They just start suffering. Ah, that hurt. Oh, you know, it's like a cattle prod every once in a while. But the person who is in ministry, and and it's different levels of ministry too. It's not just senior pastor. And I'm not saying that, what do you mean? I got to be called to be a Sunday school worker? No, that's not what it is at all. It's somebody who is called to be an elder or a pastor inside the church and sometimes deacons as well as, as they are deaconesses, as they get inside the church and they start serving and the trials come, you, you want to ask them, especially from my position being in this 26 years, I can look back and when people get in and they say, I didn't think it'd be like this. And I think to myself, what were you thinking? You know, you get into ministry, it's going to be tough. Now, is this a discouragement not to go into ministry? No, it's not. If the Lord's calling you, go forth, young man or young woman. Go ahead, get involved, dive in deep. Just go all the way to the bottom. And it will produce in you this love and this power and this joy that you thought was never possible. But if you go forward in ministry, you must understand Just like when Jesus got into ministry, what happened to him? They killed him, right? When uh, two years into the ministry here in Lakeside, there was a church split. And when the church split took place, it was just devastating uh, when it happened. And it was trying. And Chuck Smith always said, in order for the Lord to use somebody in ministry, whether evangelist or a a pastor or somebody who's the head of a ministry, 
the Lord first has to break them because then they will walk with a humility that the Lord requires. And unless somebody is willing to endure that, then it's not going to be as fruitful as it could be. Now, I I look at this, and you think from a human standpoint, then who on earth would go into ministry? Christ is our example. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He was willing to make that sacrifice for the sake of others and not for himself. And so this is what we're to glean from Jesus and his ministry. He was called to do this. He was called to come to earth to die, to be that sacrifice that we might have an open line of fellowship with God. And he encourages us to do the same thing. We are called, Timothy was encouraged by uh, Paul to endure. And that word endure, it's not like coast. Endure means it's going to be difficult. And knowing that one is called will provide strength and faith for the trials of the ministry where the individual who is not called will certainly lack in many areas and may have their faith shaken because of the suffering. And the last thing I want anybody to go through is having their faith shaken. And we want to make sure that we are solid. Now going on in verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so obedience is obtained through suffering. Now there is a move when raising children not to discipline them. I'm talking about corporal punishment. If you say this in a school or in a governmental setting, if you say, I spank my child, you can probably be brought up on child abuse charges and they may make you do community service and go to anger management and where God says if you spare the rod you hate your son or you hate your daughter you hate your child and this is the prescribed form of discipline that God gives to us now it's not to be taken out of context certainly usually it's just the threat of discipline that gets small children going And as they grow older, even that threat has to be taken away and it's shifted to other things like you won't get your license if you do this thing or you know how it works or I'm sorry, you can't have all that candy even though you want it and they're getting older. You see how you can take away things. But in the beginning when the children are small and it doesn't take much, it's mostly just the threat. We are supposed to discipline our children and we're consider all all hardship discipline and when that discipline comes along it trains us it gives us hedges why do you think when you were in school in uh, junior high or middle school and high school they had detention it was supposed to be a deterrent right who in here never had detention Oh, you goody two-shoe people. Some of us had detention, had to show up, you know, and you just had to do work and this is all your fault and you're going to pay for this thing and it was supposed to be a deterrent for you doing anything wrong on top of that. Now, just by contrast, who had to go to detention? 
Look at all you bad people in here. See, and we understand why it was installed, why we are given this type of discipline. It was for our good. There is punishment for what is wrong. And the punishment, please, let's be clear about this. The punishment is something that is supposed to be done in a loving manner, right? You're not supposed to be brutalizing your child. It's something that God, you know, he tells us, spare the rod, spoil the child. I I don't think it should ever be your hand. And I don't think if you use something like a wooden spoon, it should ever be too severe where you're leaving marks all over your child's body that, you know, it's the seat of understanding, right? The rod of discipline to the seat of understanding. And once, maybe twice at the most, and then that's it. And that's the prescription that God gives to us inside of scripture. But when this discipline comes along, is it ever pleasant? It's never pleasant to be disciplined by the Lord. But we do know that when Jesus had to suffer, and of course he was tempted in the wilderness. We know that Satan came along. He was very hungry. He said, turn this stone into bread. And he says, I will not do it. And he took him to the highest point on the temple, on the corner of the temple. And he said, you know, go ahead and throw yourself down. And Jesus said, I will not do so. I will not tempt the Lord thy God, my God. And then also, you know, the kingdoms of the world, I'll give you all of this. And Jesus said, no. And do you think that Jesus in his humanity would have loved to have done something like that? If he was human, let me ask you, would you love to throw yourself off the side of the temple and be able to fly away? I would love that. I don't know about you or jump off the Empire State Building and just land like Iron Man, you know, just come right down. And wouldn't you be, I mean, that's the flesh, right? The flesh would just love something like that. Of course, Jesus did not have the sin nature. But do you think he was hungry and wanted to eat? The answer is yes, he wanted to eat. And so he had to resist that temptation. And in order to resist it, he had to go through suffering. And this perfected him here on earth. Now, that's a whole nother discussion. How do you perfect God, right? But it was his humanity that was being perfected. God didn't have to be perfected. And both were in one. And how that works out together, I have not a clue. But God said that Jesus would have to come and he would have to suffer. And to suffer for Christ, for us, who has suffered for us, brings the individual into a deeper relationship with God. Because when you're suffering, I mean, when you have a temperature, chills, and maybe you have things coming out of your body that you wish weren't coming out of your body, do you ever call out to God? Say, God, I just, just heal me. Just please, you know, this is like the fourth day here. Just a little help, you know, just a little. And you call out to God in your time of need. And the more the suffering the more you call out to God. So in the midst of our suffering, we are called to be closer to God. That's how God gets our attention. When everything is going well, do you really turn to God and say, woohoo, all right, another one, God. Yeah, let's, you know, another zip line or another parachute or whatever it is. You don't, you don't really concentrate on that. You just concentrate on yourself and the good time that you're having. But when you're mourning, when you're suffering, when there's this degree of pain, we all have this tendency to turn to God and say, God, you are my help in my very present time of need. And that's what God wants us to do. And that's what Jesus did when he turned to God, the Father, and asked him about delivering him from this suffering and this time of death. 
If there's any other way, he said, please, but not my will, your will be done. So not that we go out and look for opportunities to suffer. That's just stupid, you know, to go out and say, I'm going to suffer for the Lord. That's just stupidity. It's when the suffering comes as a natural result of trying to follow God and Jesus Christ and be his disciple. When that happens, you just call out to God when the suffering is there. And this will enable us to have that closer walk with God. In in James chapter 4, verse 8, in the NIV it says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Or in the New King James it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And so in the midst of your suffering, if you turn to God and desire to be close to him and commune with him and give him thanks and honor and glory for who he is and what he's done, God says he will draw close to you. To you, he will draw close to us. On the times where we're not seeking to draw close to him, he's not going to be drawing close to us. And it is a way of life that we have to cultivate where we are constantly drawing ourselves close to God whether we are suffering or not. And suffering might be labeled by some people as just lack of sleep. If they have to get up and have a quiet time with God, I will and neglect my sleep and I won't be so happy then. You know, that's maybe one aspect of how we think we might suffer when there are people who are persecuted all over the world and losing their lives as a result of following Jesus. So just being a disciple will bring difficulties from within and without that will cause us to draw near to God. And that's the key. You have to want to become a disciple. There are those who believe and really not on, are not on the road to discipleship. God calls all of us to get on the road to discipleship. And not he's not going to beat us over the head to do it. He just says, come, you'll be blessed if you do this. If you don't, you won't have the blessing. Now, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and his, him crucified. Have you ever thought about what that means? Jesus Christ and him dying. I resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him going to the cross. I resolved to know nothing but to find out how Jesus died so I can die. I mean, that's the translation. That's the application as it comes to us. Are we willing to die every single day in every single moment? Let me review so far. The point in chapter 5 up to this point is that Christ is a priest, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, which we'll get into when we get to chapter 7. The Jews would have objected to the author of Hebrews saying that Jesus was a high priest because he didn't come from the lineage of Aaron. Remember, this letter is written to the Jews, so he's trying to appeal to them. But he does say he comes from from the lineage of Melchizedek, which is also somebody who had interaction with Abraham, who was the author of faith, at least as far as we are concerned for our humanity. Jesus gives every man a measure of faith that we might believe, but Abraham was the one who really exercised that faith and was put to the test. And if you remember, there was a battle going on with five kings and people being kidnapped and lot and Abraham got in there and he took the spoil. And as he came back through Jerusalem or Salem, he met Melchizedek, which was a priest to the Most High God. And he paid to him a tithe. 
And so Melchizedek was of this order of this priesthood, which Jesus comes from. And so the Jews, not wanting to confuse him too much, it's not the order of Aaron, it's the order of Melchizedek that Jesus comes from. And so they would have been stroking their beard going, I see. So there is this other priesthood that we are familiar with, but Jesus does not come from the lineage of Aaron, but he comes from the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he offered up prayers just as any priest would. And in verse 7 it says, he was heard because of his reverent and submissiveness, his reverence and his submissiveness to the will of the Father. Now, even though Jesus was God's son, God the Father thought it necessary that Jesus should suffer. And because of the suffering he endured, he became the perfect sacrifice and source of our salvation. And so that's the whole purpose of this author explaining to the Jews that he had to be this priest, one who is human, that could relate to us in every way. And so their concept, the Jews, their concept of high priest was being tweaked a little bit. Now this teaching would have been tough for the Jews to grasp, especially the leaders and the priests who are in the priesthood, because of this priest who had to suffer. When they looked at the high priest, what did they see? They saw a man who lived in the lap of luxury. There was no suffering going on whatsoever, and they had nobody to oppose them. And if they were, they were either put down as far as just their place in society, or they were killed. That happened, I'm sure, quite a bit. Uh, in the Old Testament, where there was just a lot of shenanigans going on, there was corruption, there was all kinds of vice that was taking place inside of the priesthood. And so these individuals who were being written to were giving this explanation of who Jesus was. Now, this teaching was hard for them to receive, but it's also hard for us to receive. In order to be made perfect, we have to suffer just as Jesus did. That's the concept that's being delivered here. In order to be made perfect... We have to suffer just as Jesus did. Now, there's a song by Laura Daigle, or Lauren Daigle. It's Trust in You. When we're suffering and God doesn't move the way he, we want him to, these are the words, part of the words of the song. When you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. Truth is, you know what tomorrow brings. There's not a day ahead you have not seen. So let all things be my life and breath. I want what you want, Lord, and nothing less. So is, is that where we are? That's where the Lord wants us. He sees everything. There's not a day that is transpiring that he hasn't already seen. And in the midst of our suffering, we are simply supposed to trust. Now, this idea that suffering brings about good things for us, even a flaming atheist, a pagan, a politician, and a saint, all alike, they agree with this concept. I'm going to give you some quotes here. To live is to suffer. To survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. Now, the person who wrote this was a flaming atheist. I say flaming is, he's the one that came up with God is dead, Frederick Nietzsche. He is the guy that said to live is to suffer, to survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. We have meaning in our suffering. When we suffer, we know why we're suffering. Why? Because God wants to perfect us. 
We can't be perfected without the suffering. Well, can he just speak the word and make it happen? No. You know, we, we want him to just say, God, can't you just make my life smooth and just give me the info that I need so I can make it to the end and there's no problems. Just keep me healthy, no sickness, no problem. And we turn to God and say, please. And he goes, no, it's not going to happen for us. He doesn't want that for us. We have been given Philippians 1. I use this all the time. Philippians 1. We have been given the privilege to suffer. Do you consider it a privilege? Woohoo! It's my privilege. Not really. I, I don't look at it like that. But God said, this is necessary. Then there was Harry S. Truman. The reward for suffering is experience. But what if you said, I don't want the experience. But what if God said, I want you to have the experience. Well, experience is a great teacher. Because a lot of times you'll have successes. And probably more times you'll have failures. And we can learn from that failure, right? Going on. This guy, you probably don't know him. He was associated with a Baha'i faith. He was raised as a Christian, but he was heavily influenced by Islam. His name is Khalil Gibran. Out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls. The most massive characters are seared with scars. And so if you want a character that is just exemplary, well, it's probably going to take a lot of suffering in order to achieve that. And then there's a Christian. He said, I'll give you his name in a minute, a reason of suffering is a small assignment when compared to the reward. Rather than begrudge your problem, explore it, ponder it, and most of all, use it. Use it for the glory of God. That was written by Max Lucado. And so not that we're supposed to pray necessarily to get out of a trial. If God grants us that ability and we're able to pray and he gets us out, fantastic. But if he doesn't let up on the suffering, and when we pray, Lord, will you please alleviate a little of this suffering? And he seems to press down on the pedal a little more and the suffering gets a little more severe, then we're supposed to use it for the glory of God. We're supposed to learn from that. And then there's a man who lived 500 years before Christ. He was a playwright that is actually credited with coming up with the first set of tragedies, a tragedy like Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, things like that. His name is Aeschylus. Wisdom comes alone through suffering. Have you ever prayed for wisdom? Does not James say pray for wisdom? What are you praying for? What, it's like, you want to be a man or woman of faith? Go ahead, pray that prayer. I want to be a man or woman of faith. Well, choose one. I, I want to be a man of faith, right? Or I want to be a woman of faith. What are you praying for? Give you the necessary training that you can endure it and trust God more, right? It just doesn't happen that God says, okay, you have more faith. It, it doesn't work like that. Or if you want wisdom, suffering produces the wisdom. If you want to be wise, God says, I will give it. To you. This is, you know, you got to think about this. God says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask it and I will give it to him without finding fault. Well, you mean 
there could be some suffering along with this. Yes, there could be. Because, you know, the most wise people are usually the older ones. Media would not let you believe that. Who are the wisest? Who are all the smart doctors on television? Doogie Hauser. How old was he? Like, yeah, 14 or something like that. He's the smart one, a savant. You know, he's just incredibly intelligent. Well, that intelligence usually comes, that wisdom usually comes 50, 60, 70, 80 because you have seen so much and experienced so much by that time in your life. And a lot of suffering has come along with that. And so this idea of being a foreign concept, can't you please, God, just get me to the end without suffering, without pain, without sorrow, just give me the faith, give me the wisdom, please? The answer, I believe, is always going to be no. If you want those things, we have been given the privilege to suffer for Christ. Now, this is hard, as I said, for the Jews to accept this teaching about the priesthood and Jesus and suffering. And for us, it's hard for us to receive this teaching. But those who can't receive it have not matured. In verse 11, it says, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. Now, remember, I have told you there are five dangers in the book of Hebrews. The danger of drifting, the danger of not entering into the rest, and we dealt with that in chapter 3 and 4. And then there's the danger of not going on to maturity. Verse 12, it says, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. Remember, he's talking to Jews who know the Old Testament covenant, who have become Christians, but they really haven't learned it, what it is to be a Christian. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. In other words, there's some operative words here, constant use. <clears throat> now, if you operate any kind of machinery and you have a grease zert. Now, if you don't know what a grease zert fitting is, it's this little protrusion, has a little bitty ball bearing in it, and you're supposed to take this grease and you stick the grease in the zert and you pump it a couple of times and you pull it out. And you constantly have to do that when machinery is operational. When you used to drive heavy construction equipment, that was the first thing we had to do in the morning. You had to check the oil, you had to check the gas, and go around once a week and pump some grease in all the fittings. And it would just ooze out everywhere to keep the machine operational. Something that was regular, constant use. And in order to be lubricated like that machine, you have to have the washing of the word. The Holy Spirit comes in and he fills you up to overflowing. And there's this constant renewal. If we don't have any kind of devotional life, there's not going to be this constant renewal. And therefore, you're going to suffer needlessly and you're going to be lost and you're not going to know what to do when certain situations come up. So he says, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. In other words, you learn, oh, that was the wrong choice last time. I'm going to make the right choice this time. By constant use, they have trained themselves. Verse 1 of chapter 6 says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God, instruction about baptisms, and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting we will do so. So he names several 
doctrines that are here. Being mature, if you go on the internet, and I'm not going to reinvent the wheel, if you go on the internet and you say, what does a mature Christian look like? There are lists ad infinitum, right? I went to this one place, Denver Seminary with Gordon McDonald, and of course, you know, being the chancellor at Denver Seminary, he needed 12 points to say what is a transformed Christian or one who is mature. I'm just going to read those to you. Number one, has an undiluted devotion to Jesus. Number two, pursues a biblical informed view of the world. Number three, is intentional and disciplined in seeking God's direction. Number four, worships and with a spirit of continuous repentance. Number five, builds healthy human relationships. Number six, knows how to engage a larger world. Number seven, senses a personal call and unique competencies. Is merciful, number eight, and generous to those who are weaker. Number nine, appreciates that suffering is part of faithfulness to Jesus. Number 10, is eager and ready to express the content of his faith. Number 11, overflows with thankfulness. Number 12, has a passion for reconciliation. I mean, I could have just gone on with 12 more, you know, 24. Somebody else put it like this in six items. They are motivated to seek God without prompting. Number two, they're more concerned about the inside than the outside. Number three, they search for truth. Number four, the person who is a mature Christian, they admit truth to God. Number five, then admit truth to others. Number six, they train themselves daily. So those were six things that were given. You know what I think it is? Two things. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, it's pretty simple. If you, if you ever have a decision to make, ask yourself, is this loving God? Is this loving my neighbor? I mean, it's so simple. But of course, some people say, well, I need to divide it up. We almost become like the Pharisees who say, well, I need to write the Mishnah in order to interpret the Bible. And the Bible is smaller now than the Mishnah. But if you keep the Mishnah, then you're for sure to be righteous. No, we're not righteous by what we do. We're righteous because of what Christ does for us. There was one person who said, this is what an infant looks like. Spiritual infants are self-centered. Amen to that. You ever see a child that wasn't? Especially a small child? They're all self-centered, right? Spiritual infants are noisy. They cry a lot, particularly when they don't get their needs met. Number three, a spiritual infant is messy. Toddlers do not clean up after themselves. That's someone else's job. Number four, spiritual infants are impatient. The crying baby cannot be told that the milk warming should be ready in about five minutes. Another reason somebody is a spiritual infant, they are defined by what they cannot do. I can't do that. I don't have enough faith for that. One theme that keeps on coming up over and over that I see being in this position is if God wants to do something and sometimes it's a little bigger than what we have quote unquote resources to do, people will disqualify even moving forward because they don't have the money, right? Now that should never be the first disqualification of why you don't do something just because you don't have the money. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. 
Psalms. I think it was Psalm 50, verse 10, that says that. And so if he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, is he rich? Yes, he's rich. What if he wants to slaughter one cow for you? All you have to do is ask. You just got to find out, is it the Lord's will that we go forward? No, I can't do it. I don't have money. You know, just never have enough. Do we ever have enough? We never have enough. But usually God comes through, usually. You know, sometimes we get tested in our faith, but most of the time God just comes through and here it is. But you have to step forward first. I was explaining this to somebody just yesterday. You know, the priest, when Joshua was going into the promised land and he had to go into the Jordan River, it didn't say step up to the edge of the Jordan River and then it will part, right? That's not what he said. No, get the priest to stand in the water. I'll get wet. Yeah, you'll get wet, stand in the water. And as soon as you stood in the water, then the water started to part. You, it's like you had to go through the action of stepping into the water. You have to open the door. Open the door and see if God wants you to do it. If he wants you to do it, praise the Lord. You're going to be blessed. Wow, that was so cool. I didn't know if God would have it. And I've seen this over and over and over where people say, I don't have money. God is our father. He has all kinds of money. And if he wants you to have it, it can literally fall out of the sky for you if he wants you to have it. And so this is not an issue. So somebody who is a spiritual infant, they are defined by what they cannot do. Another spiritual infant example is they are explosive and can go off at anything. Have you seen somebody that they just like rip? Now I have to admit Sometimes that happens to me. I think you're so immature. You're such a baby. Just grow up, would you? You know, I say that to myself. And, and that, but spiritually immature, if somebody's in the church and they just go off, they get offended at the least little thing, well, they're spiritually immature. Also, spiritual infants are irresponsible. They're great at expecting a lot from others and nothing from themselves spiritually and irresponsible. And we've had this over the years. Every ministry has it. Somebody signs up to do something and they don't show up or they're not part of it. Or they say, that'd be great. Let's do this. Let's gung ho. You know how many times I've had people come up to me and say, you need to start a prayer meeting. Wonderful idea. When are you going to open up the church? And they oh, no, not me. Oh, yes, go ahead. You can do this. No, no, I can't. No. Okay, forget I said anything. And they walk away. They don't want to take responsibility, but they want me to take responsibility for that, right? Or somebody else inside the church, they want to put it on somebody else instead of grabbing hold of the task by themselves. So it's my opinion, if you want to love God, if you want to grow up and be spiritually mature, if you want to love others, you have to dive in. And a little commentary with this. In order to grow up and be mature, you must have a desire to become mature. If you don't have the desire, it's never going to happen. You actually have to put effort into it. Not necessarily the desire to undertake the task of becoming mature, but the desire to be pleasing to God. That's supposed to be our motivation. And don't let somebody beat you over the head like, you need to become a disciple, and if you don't, you're probably not saved. It's just, you know, don't even go there. Secondly, maturity happens naturally, Right? You see your child, you do feed the child, but the child's going to grow. And as the child grows, if you feed the child properly, what's the child going to look like when they turn 16? They're going to be five, six foot, they're muscle. That's right. 
They're going to be able to come up to their mother if it's a young man. Look, mom, I got muscles. And oh, you sure do, honey. Look at those muscles. so strong. And you turn to the young girls. Oh, you're so pretty. You're so cute. You know, they grow up and it's just wonderful. It's all great. It just happens. You just got to feed them, you know. But if you don't feed them, now eventually they'll die if you don't feed them. But if you feed them sparingly, they're going to grow up, but their growth is going to be stunted. They're always going to be hungry. They're going to look emaciated. It's like, I take care of this one place, and it has 50 palm trees. Palm trees like are right outside here, the big ones, the queen palms, you know, they're out there. And these 50 palm trees, you can tell around the property which ones don't get very much water or fertilizer. And there is one who has found the leech lines on the septic tank. Guess what that baby looks like? That thing is about this big around. It is twice as tall as everything else. And you say, well, what are you telling me? I have to get down in the mud or something and to grow? It's this idea you have to tap into the nutrition Some people get saved and they just sprout up like that palm tree, that queen palm. You go, whoa, look at that thing. That's way up there. And and the seed pods and those things weigh hundreds of pounds. It's just amazing. And people will grow up like that. And then you'll see other people that, yeah, I haven't had much water in my life. And they're just gaunt and have a couple of fronds coming out. I'm not doing so well. Why? Because I don't have enough water or food. Well, there comes a time where you start feeding yourself. And if we're not feeding ourselves, then spiritually, we will lack maturity. Pursuing maturity requires reinforcement. In other words, you can't do it alone. You have to get together with a group of people. And in closing on this, I can tell you what a mature believer looks like. It's milk, meat, and the street. You get the milk, you get the sustenance, you find out the basic doctrines, you get the meat, you're able to defend the faith, you know what the Bible says, and then you take it to the street. That's where you go. When, once you have come to the point of being spiritually mature. Now, I'm going to close with this. In order to accomplish this, from time to time, I set up a teaching. I've already contacted five or six men about this, and this is for men only. I know it being exclusive and sexist and all of that, but this is for men only. Beginning August 3rd, I think that is the first Thursday at 6 p.m. in the evening, I'm going to be starting probably a 10-week or so study. It'll be done by Thanksgiving where we sit down and we help you to become spiritually mature, where we set you down, make sure you know what a devotional life is, make sure that you know what doctrine is, make sure that you understand how to work through dilemmas and have a discussion and make sure you're able to defend your faith. All of those things are necessary to become mature. If you've never been discipled in that way, I'd encourage you to put this on your calendar. I'm going to have Kim, you can remember this, put that in the bulletin. It's going to be the first Thursday of August. We're going to start it. There's about three weeks between now and then. And we'll get on the road to maturity. As far as you women are concerned, you can see my wife, see Sandy Capaletti, see Cheryl, see... I can name all kinds of women in here. If you have an issue and you don't think you're maturing enough, seek out somebody and get in contact with them. Say, will you disciple me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how these Jews have been an example to us and this letter has provided for us instruction. Help us all be on the road, the path to maturity so that we might bring glory to you 
and help us to count any suffering that we endure as a momentary and light affliction. And with your help, we will do so in Jesus' name. Amen.